Welcome to The Landscape, a Cranes Cleveland podcast. I'm Dan Paletta. Thanks for being with us. Come January, Ohio will have a new U.S. Senator as incumbent Rob Portman has decided not to seek another term. We're pleased to be joined by the Republican nominee for that seat, J.D. Vance. Mr. Vance is an attorney, a venture capitalist, and he's the author, of course, of the best-selling book from 2016, Hillbilly Elegy. Mr. Vance, thanks for being with us today. Thank you for having me. You obviously had a very nice career going. What made you decide that instead you wanted to seek this U.S. Senate seat from Ohio? Yeah, you know, I, I guess just uh, feel like the state of Ohio has given me quite a bit, and I owe it a lot, and I owe the country a lot. And I, I, I was one of these people who was getting very frustrated with the direction of the country and started to get sick of uh, complaining at the TV and yelling at the TV and, you know, t- talking to my wife about all the things that uh, the Republican Party should be do should be doing but wasn't. And so decided to sort of throw my hat in the ring um, and make the case directly to voters, of course, first in a Republican primary and now to, to the broader electorate. We're having a good time. And I think there's a lot that we can do. So that's why I'm running. Do you think all of us are doing a lot more yelling at the TV these days than we did, say, 20 years ago? I, I think we probably do. It's probably a part of the problem in our country is too much yelling at the TV from both our political leaders and also our voters. But I, I think all of us would probably appreciate a little bit more doing and a little bit more actually policy, policy making. And hopefully, uh, once I win, which I think I will, um, we can do that. When you live in the city limits of a place like Cleveland or, or inner ring suburbs or any of Ohio's major cities, sometimes it's easy to forget that the rest of the state is very rural. I think we all want safety, good jobs, good schools. But are, th- are there things that voters in Bell Fountain or Coldwater want that might be different than when someone in Cleveland Heights wants? You know, I, I, I certainly, I, I, you know, in the suburbs of the big cities, I hear a little bit more about crime. Uh, and I'm outside of the big cities, I, I probably hear a little bit more about inflation, the price of food, the price of you know goods and services, especially for small businesses and farmers in those rural areas. But it's not like I don't hear a lot about inflation in Cleveland or in Columbus or in the suburbs. And it's not like I don't hear about crime in some of the smaller areas, um, smaller towns as well. So I, I'm pretty, hearing some pretty consistent things. I, mean, I was in Finley uh, in northwestern Ohio, beautiful town, You know, unlike Middletown, the town that I grew up in. You know, did not have this major period of job loss. They're kind of trying to dig themselves out of. Finley's always just, you know, felt like this very prosperous, very beautiful town. Uh, they now have a chronic homeless population in Finley, of all places. Uh, they have a drug problem in Finley because of, of the drugs that are coming across the southern border. And so, you know, it's it's one of these crazy things where even some of the small towns that you think or at least hope would be insulated from the, some of the stuff, uh, they're as affected by the crime, the border prices, the, the border prices as, as much as anyone seems when we talk about the things that divide us, we tend to look at race and we tend to look at gender, but class always seems to take a back seat. Why do you think that is? Yeah, it's a very good question. I, I think in some ways uh, class is the more obvious thing that we should be focused on. I mean, we'd really be a lot better off if we focused on, you know, one, what unites us, but also our, I think, our shared economic hopes and dreams and optimisms and, and fears. And unfortunately, we have a politics that I think constantly wants to divide people by race and gender, I think it's a huge mistake. And you know, if if I, if I can put on my tinfoil hat a little bit, I think it's probably because you know th- those who benefit from you know from let's say globalization, from shipping jobs to China, they'd much rather us talk about gender and race differences than they would about the fact that our economy has not been as, as generous to middle class people as I think that it should. And so I when, I when I hear people talking obsessively about race and class and identity politics. Or I should say race and gender and identity politics, uh, what I really see is a massive distraction from the real problems, which is a lot of people are falling further behind. And if you fix that problem, I think you'd fix a lot of the division. 
you mentioned this issue of China and their economic dominance. You've said we've become too dependent on China and on other countries, and we don't produce enough of our goods here. So how do we change that? Yeah, it's funny. One of these weird arguments that was made, you know, when I, I was a kid, first started paying attention to politics, is that, yes, we'd lose a lot of jobs um, in, in the era of globalization. We'd have a lot of manufacturing facilities, you know, move to Mexico or to China or somewhere else. But it would benefit American consumers because everything would become cheaper. And I, I, you know, I'm looking around this inflation crisis that we have. And, you know, we lost all the jobs to China and New Mexico and other places. But the goods are still much more expensive than they should be. And so somehow the American worker, the working class people of Ohio got 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 shut out of that trade in both. I mean, I, I really think that we have to recognize that the entire era of globalization, you know, while it did, of course, bring some benefits. It also made us incredibly vulnerable. Uh, it made our supply chains very unstable, very brittle. So when something like COVID comes along, uh, we're all depending on regimes, some regimes that don't like us very much to get critical goods that we need. And that's not a good idea. And, and I think, unfortunately, you know, things could get worse. In other words, uh, if, it, if it was bad to depend on the Chinese during the era of COVID, it probably would be much worse to depend on the Chinese if we were actually engaged in a conflict either directly or indirectly with the Chinese Communist Party. And so I, I think there are two broad things that we have to do to sort of break our reliance, especially on China, but on other countries as well. Uh, you know, one is, is, and it's become a dirty word in American economic policy, but I think that we have to be open to tariffs, to rewarding effectively the companies uh, that, are, that are producing here in the United States and employing Ohio workers to do it, but also penalizing the companies that are getting a little bit more enmeshed with the Communist Chinese. That's step one. And I think step two is we have to be very forward looking about this because a lot of the intellectual property that will be developed in this country over the next generation could provide a, a massive, massive economic boon to our people. But only if that intellectual property uh, is actually controlled by our people, by the companies and the people who created it. And, and when you have massive intellectual property theft on a global scale coming from communist China, that creates an environment where we can make the product of the future. We can invent the thing of the future. But if the Chinese steal it, our people aren't going to be better off. And so we have to combat that intellectual property theft. Does the government have a role in trying to encourage companies to produce more goods here domestically? I really think it does. Yeah, I mean, I, I, there, there, there was this, this idea that took over, uh, frankly, in both parties, though you maybe saw it more in my own party in the Republican Party than in the Democrats. But I, I think, you know, from Bill Clinton to Barack Obama, you saw it really, you know, in Bush, you saw it everywhere which was this, this sort of idea uh, completely let global trade unfold in the way that it, was, it, 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 that, that it, that it wanted to. And if we ignored Chinese trade practices, if we ignored the ways in which they undercut American goods and American companies who are making those goods, um, that, that again, yeah, it might hurt the American consumer, worker a little bit, but it would, it would ultimately mean much cheaper products over the long term. And I, I think in practice what it led to is a very, very powerful communist China, a relatively weaker United States of America. And I think for us to learn the lessons of the last 30 years, we have to recognize we, we can't just depend on, on, on these countries to make all of our things. And at a certain level, you need a credible national economic policy to fight back against this stuff. You mentioned inflation. This is obviously a problem. And the Fed has started to get more aggressive with trying to slow interest rates and bring prices down. But are, are there other things the government should be doing to try in both short and long term to try to curb inflation? Yeah, I mean, in, in some ways, I, I see the Fed as fighting a war um, that it shouldn't be fighting, or at least it shouldn't have to fight. Because the real drivers of inflation, as I see it, are fiscal policy and energy policy. You know, on the one hand, we're spending money, we're borrowing and spending money that we don't have. 
which is juicing the demand in our economy. And then on the other hand, we have a Biden administration that is really aggressively harming the American energy sector, which makes it more expensive to produce everything from the food that we, we eat to the manufacturing goods that we consume uh, to everything in between. And so I, I really think that uh, what we need to do is stop spending so recklessly and really open up the American energy sector, which will benefit everything from farming to manufacturing. If we do that, we'll get the inflation crisis under control. It's going to take a little bit of time. But I, I do really see this as a consequence of bad policy coming from the president the last couple of years and, and of course, the president's party. Um, but but I, at the end of the day, I understand why the Fed is doing what it's doing. But when you have the Fed effectively working against the fiscal policy of the government, we should all be looking around and asking ourselves, well, why isn't the fiscal policy of the government just a lot more sensible? As you know, Larry Summers, the Obama administration economist, said, you know, if you vote for all these spending bills, if you enact all of these pieces of, of, of legislation uh, from the Inflation Reduction Act to, you know, the, the Build Back Better plan, which, thank God, didn't actually pass, uh, what you're ultimately going to have is skyrocketing inflation. Larry Summers was right. And I wish his party had listened to him. J.D. Vance joins us today for the Landscape of Cranes Cleveland podcast. Mr. Vance is running for the U.S. Senate seat that will be vacated by Senator Rob Portman. He joins us today for this conversation about his campaign and politics. So we talked about this issue of, of support for businesses and trying to get them to come to Ohio. Intel is a big deal. Obviously, coming to Ohio, you were supportive of the CHIPS bill, but many in your party were not. Is this what we talked about before, that that was this notion that government should not be involved in any of these kind of things? You know, I think there's a little bit of that, um, and I think there's a certain fear that the chips money, of course, spends money, and people are very worried about spending money in the midst of an inflation crisis. Um, I, I, but, you know, but, but at the end of the day, I, I think that those fears are overblown or, or overstated. At, at the end of the day, the way to really fix the economic problems in this country is to produce more of our own goods. Um, you, you think about the, the long-term fiscal deficit that we have. Well, one way you have a deficit is if you consume more than you produce, right? So you've got to be Got to bring more production back to the state of Ohio, more production back to this country uh, domestically. Uh, the chip bill is not perfect, right? There are all of these things that I would like it to do that it didn't do. Uh, there are other ways, especially when it comes to intellectual property protection, that I think our country has to be more aggressive. Uh, so the chip bill does not solve all problems, but I don't think that we can make the perfect of the enemy the good. It was a piece of legislation. I think it's going to create a lot of jobs in Ohio. I think it's going to solve a critical national security challenge for the whole country because chips you know, they go in everything. They go even in, in, in modern weapon systems. So it was a good bill. And I, and I understand, you know, that people had concerns with it. But I think those concerns do not justify not supporting legislation. Senator Rob Portman, whose seat you're seeking, was instrumental in the passage of the infrastructure bill. What's your assessment of that bill and how it might affect our future economic growth? You know, it, there's obviously some good things in it. I think we need a lot of, of, of additional infrastructure in our country. I mean, I'm driving right now between uh, Cincinnati and Youngstown, and you know there are a lot of a lot of roads across our state that are in pretty rough shape. I, I think there there's one thing in particular um, that that I I really worry about with the infrastructure bill. Um, you know, if you think about one of the major logistics challenges in our country right now, uh, we we need more truck drivers, and we need more truck drivers wherever we can get them uh, in whatever form uh, we can get them. And 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 this this bill, I think, instead of really focusing on solving the truck driver shortage. Uh, it, it established a commission that would study and make policy recommendations regarding the gender inequities in the truck driving profession. And this sort of goes back to the very first thing you asked about, which is why are we focused so much on gender differences 
uh, and not on just the fact that we want more truck drivers, whether they're male, female, whatever. We just need more truck drivers. Um, and if you know more men want to be truck drivers than women, that's not a major problem for our federal government to solve. Again, we just need more truck drivers out there. Um, and, and, I, and I think that, that that sort of illustrated some of the problems that a lot of Democrats put into the legislation, which is ultimately why I wouldn't have voted for it, is because, you know, if you take a $900 billion piece of legislation, it has $300 billion worth of infrastructure um, and $600 billion worth of stuff that I don't think was especially effective. That really is what worries me about that bill. It uh, doesn't mean we don't need infrastructure, but I think it could have gotten a better bill uh, in the process. You've been pretty outspoken about big tech and its role in our country. What do you think they're doing that's so harmful to harm our country? I think there are two basic issues with the technology industry. I think, you know, one is they're developing these products, um, some of which are very effective and some of which are very good. You know, they allow us to communicate with one another more more efficiently than ever before. Uh, but, but they're also, I think, especially with regards to children, uh, they're addictive um, and they really invade the privacy, again, especially of children, but of everybody else, too. And so I, I'm really bothered by some of the modern practices in the tech industry where they effectively steal user data. Uh, they sell that data in a way that sometimes I think leads to predatory conduct uh, from individuals or other companies. Sometimes they steal it in a way that just leads to an invasion of privacy. I think probably the biggest offender is the Chinese app TikTok, which, of course, a lot of our kids are using these days. So I, that's that's issue number one. Issue number two is I think that they're engaging um, themselves in the political process in a way that's very biased towards one side. And I think ultimately really, really harms the constitutional republic that all of us cherish and all of us you know, really depend on. Um, and, and so, you know, I don't care if, if Google wants to, you know, say that it's only going to allow certain types of content on, on its platform. But when it pretends to be politically neutral, but in fact it discriminates against particular viewpoints, then that's when it has a distortionary effect on our country. And I think that's what we really have to deal with is we need these these platforms. They're the modern information superhighway, right? That's the way that most of us communicate is 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 on on Facebook or using Apple devices or using, you know, Google's various technology products from YouTube on down. Um, a lot of us, of course, use all those products or at least some combination of them. They have to be politically neutral. Um, they are effectively monopolists. They control the flow of modern inf information. I wish they didn't, but they do. But if they're going to do that, then they have to use it in a politically neutral way. I, otherwise, they're really putting their thumb on the scale um, in, in one direction in our country, and I think that's a problem. The never-ending debate is about climate change. Is it appropriate to try to provide incentives for the production of purchase of electric vehicles, alternative forms of energy, those sorts of things? It's one of the things, the core things that our government should be doing, which is developing and providing incentives for new technologies. What I really don't like about our current approach, especially vis-a-vis you know, -vis driving, is you know, I don't think it's appropriate for the government to be trying to shut down one form of, of automobile, one form of vehicle. Uh, there's been a lot of real aggressive action towards gas-powered cars, even as they've been really aggressively subsidizing electric cars. Uh, the thing that I really worry about here is you don't want the government to, to pick and choose winners. You want it to support nascent new technologies as they're getting off the ground. Uh, you don't want the government to, let's say, you know, hammer Ohio auto workers even as they promote electric vehicles or hammer Ohio auto workers but not provide proper incentives to maybe to, to hydrogen cars or some of the other technologies that are out there. And so I, I, the, the thing that I worry about with regards to a lot of this stuff is just the government's picking winners and losers. 
uh, we, we need to stop that. And I think if you look at the environmental consequences of driving um, a gas-powered car, this is not the sort of thing that our government should be worried about. If we're really worried about carbon emissions in the world, we should be focused on the Chinese economy, not on penalizing Ohio auto workers. You mentioned auto workers. Many of them are members of a labor union, and the Republican Party is starting to position itself as being more supportive of labor unions. Again, 30 years ago, you probably wouldn't have said that. Do you think that the government should try to make it easier for labor unions to organize? Yeah, I'm definitely one of these Republicans who thinks that the party should go in a more in a more pro-labor direction. And I think we have to be a little bit careful about, you know, separating some of the leadership of the national or the international organizations uh, that are that are very much committed to the Democratic Party from the membership where, you know, if, if you judge if you judge what's going on uh, recently in American politics, there are a lot of unions in the state of Ohio where 60, 70, 80 percent of the membership will vote for me uh, in the U.S. Senate race. And I want to be a good representative to those people. I want them to actually feel like their senator, especially the senator they voted for, is representing them and looking out for them. Uh, my, my sense here is that you know, there's a lot about, about labor policy that we could learn from Europe. It's a little less adversarial there. there. There's a lot to recommend that system. And it's not surprising that in a lot of countries in Europe, uh, you have higher private sector participation, labor unions. Um, so I, I, I think there are certainly ways in which we can reform American labor policy. But broadly speaking, uh, I'm pro-worker, and if people want to join unions and they feel like they need to to get the right bargaining power, uh, I'm all for that. Finally, you described January 6th as a bad day in our country's history, but one that's not really relevant to what's going on today. Mr. Trump, who supported you in the primary and may run in 2024, still denies the results of the 2020 election. Are we at risk of repeating January 6th again if if things keep going this way? I, I really don't think so. I mean, look, you know, we have a big country. It's It's diverse. It has 330 million people. You know, you're certainly going to have fits of, of violence, of protests that go wrong. Of course, we saw that in the summer of 2020. We certainly saw that on January the 6th. I, but, but I don't think that we, we are any, at any real risk of, let's say, overturning our democracy, which is one of these phrases you hear uh, repeated very often. Uh, I, I just think at the end of the day, people protest sometimes. Sometimes the, those protests uh, get really out of hand. But a protest getting out of hand, I think, doesn't mean that our democracy is sort of fundamentally under assault. It just means that sometimes, you know, sometimes things don't go the way that they should. And so when I think about 2024, whether the president, uh, meaning President Trump, runs again or not, uh, if, he, if he did run again, um, I think, you know, as I've said multiple times before, uh, I think the policies really, really worked for the people of Ohio. You saw rising wages. You saw safer streets. Uh, I, I, I would love to see a return to those policies. So if the president runs again, uh, I, will, I will certainly support him. The thing that I'd say is whether he runs again or not, we're not going to have a major threat to American democracy, I don't think, in my lifetime. Uh, of course, I could be wrong, and I hope that I'm not. Thanks so much for joining us today and sharing some thoughts on the campaign. We're glad you could be with us today. Of course. Thank you. Take care, man. J.D. Vance is running for the U.S. Senate seat, being vacated by Ohio Senator Rob Portman. He joins us today for The Landscape, a Cranes Cleveland podcast. I'm Dan Paletta. Thank you for joining us, and we'll talk again soon. <laughs> Thank you.